0: Hidden Horizons The Art of Hiding by J. M. <laughs> 7. The Town That Cannot Be Found Watching the weeping willows slide by, Nan had the peculiar sensation that the tugboat taking them to Wanish Limpley was not going anywhere. It seemed to be the landscape that was on the move. She threw some bread to the ducks that effortlessly paddled alongside and watched them scoot back, bobbing on the boat's wake. Behind her, Nan's father was holding up Hartley, encouraging the toddler to wave goodbye to the rooftops of the city falling behind in the distance. Hartley waved enthusiastically, mimicking his father who looked truly happy for the first time in days. Inside the tiny cabin of the myriad swayed Captain Mace, who neither looked ahead nor to the compass in front of him to steer, but seemed to rely on some inner instinct to navigate. The old boatman hawked up some phlegm, puffed out his cheeks to contain it, leant out of the cabin and spat out a great dollop of spittle which floated down the canal until finally being caught up in the training arms of a willow. "'How did we end up here?' Nan asked herself for the tenth time that day, and looked to her twin brother, Tristan, who was leaning upon the railings on the other side of the boat. The similar question might have been running through Tristan's mind, as he stood staring at their uncle Adrian. "'No!' Adrian blurted out from the stubby prow of the boat, unable to contain the debate in his mind any longer without giving voice to it. "'Mere chance!' "'Adrian Elliot,' retreated to his thoughts, while Nan and Tristan exchanged glances. Tristan shrugged, yawned loudly and returned his gaze to the water. When the rooftops and steeples of the Elliot's home city finally slipped out of sight, the captain and Adrian huddled together on the prow. After a hushed consultation which led to the old sailor taking out a plumb line from a locked case, he appeared to measure the depth of the water beneath the vessel with it. The measurement taken, Captain Mace decided he should charge the tug at the overgrown far bank of the canal. The old pilot casually spun the wheel and the tugboat veered towards the trees. The Elliot family thought him to be executing a surprise U-turn to take them back towards the city, but the boat stopped turning once aimed directly at the bank of trees. They were too astonished to try to stop it, but scrabbled for the relative safety of the cabin, braced themselves and waited for the impact that never came. Branches screeched along the hull of the myriad, vines thudded against its windows, stripped twigs and leaves rained down into the wheelhouse like confetti, but it was all soon swept aside and the little tugboat chugged on without any obvious hindrance. When Nan opened her eyes and finally let go of the doorframe, all she could see was a new waterway stretched out before her, bearing ever so slightly to the right. All that lay behind them was a dense wall of greenery. Nan and Tristan immediately went into a huddle of their own and tried to work out how, in all their years of walking and playing beside the canal, they'd never discovered this waterway. "'I'm telling you, Nan, I've been through these woods a hundred times, and other than the main one, there's no canal here,' Tristan complained, whilst gazing at the large stretch of water. "'Well, (laughs) at least there shouldn't be one.' "'We could have missed it, Trist,' replied Nan. "'A stream? Yes. A waterfall, maybe. But a whole canal, Nan?' (laughs) "'What kind of a goober misses a whole canal? "'Just look at it. It's got to be 30 feet across,' Tristan declared. "'Don't you think that if there was anything nearby "'that I could fall into or get harmed by, I would have discovered it?' Phew. No, Nan. I'm ashamed of myself, "'especially as it takes my nutter of an uncle to point it out to me.' "'Tristan finished his speech and sank into a brooding silence. "'Nan stared at the front of the boat where Adrian stood "'like some explorer forging his way through a foreign land.' Once again, he'd managed to confound and confuse them, and part of her hated him for it. The voyage then led them through wilder, stranger countryside, where the canal shed its confines and could genuinely be called a river. The myriad forged through the dappled water, at a fast walking pace beneath a luminous canopy of trees and bushes, the like of which neither twin had ever seen before. All the plants appeared to have more leaves and less space to grow than any hedgerow or woodland they'd ever passed through. It was as if the forest was not simply marking out its boundary, but was representing a living, unbroken barrier of jungle vegetation. Behind it emanated the high, chattering conversations of the prey and the low, growling rasps of the predator. Captain Mace suggested that the Elliot family should stay in the Myriad's wheelhouse for safety. He then alarmed them even further by lifting up a hatch and uncovering, and then priming, a little cannon that sat at the prow of the tug, the mouth of the barrel normally hidden behind a great knotted rope fender. After some miles of jungle, with the course of the river always bearing around towards the right, the dense foliage gave way to rock cliffs. The rock cliffs channelled the water flow into rapids and whirlpools, forcing the captain to take the helm and finally navigate the bucking boat. Is it me, or are we getting nowhere slowly? Tristan asked Nan. You've had that sensation too, Nan whispered back. It's strange, isn't it? It's like we're deliberately getting ourselves lost, like we're being pursued and we're trying to throw the hunters off our scent. Yeah, either that or Captain Clueless there has less of an idea about where we are than Hartley. They looked at Captain Mace, or rather the place where Captain Mace had just been, where most people would have said he should have been, but he'd abandoned the steering wheel again and was now outside dangling the plumb line in the water. His measurement taken, the old sailor pitched back into his wheelhouse and spun the wheel around, turning the prow of the boat towards a solid granite wall. The twins had learned not to watch this manoeuvre. It was even more disconcerting that Captain Mace's relaxed view of piloting the craft... Nan was certain that the myriad would be dashed to pieces this time. She could see how a waterway might remain hidden behind thick bushy foliage, but surely nothing could lie behind the rock face other than a mountain. Once again, however, the captain demonstrated his skill as the solid cliff proved to be an illusion of false perspective. Part of it lay farther back from the rock face than it appeared. It was not until the boat was almost upon it That Nan noticed a small water channel, just big enough to accommodate the myriad, threading its way behind the immense cliffs. Once through the gorge, the rocks seemed to sink back into the earth of a wild moorland with low rocky hills where the wind almost consciously tried to capsize the exposed tug. Nan was sure that this type of landscape did not exist anywhere near their city. Something else had been bothering her too since they'd made the first turning off the canal she had not seen a single sign of human habitation. Captain Mace finished his third depth reading and completed a final turn in towards a solid bank of tall sedge grass that merely glided aside to allow the tugs safe passage. They were now entering a country of low flat marshland, of lingering mists, of rustling reeds and the plaintive lonely call of the curlew. The captain was forced to take the wheel once more so that he could navigate his way around mud islands and submerged silt banks until he reached a large, fast-flowing body of water, which shot the little tug out into a grey, disgruntled sea. In comparison with the previous landscapes, the sea and the coastline, from which they never strayed far, were dull and were beginning to become indistinct in the descending twilight. The myriad braved the rollers that swelled up beneath her hull and then left the little vessel's engine floundering as they passed. The Elliot family spent their time in the tiny boat's cabin, huddled around the pot-bellied stove which kept the captain supplied with stewed tea. Captain Mace was not a man who looked as if luxury meant that much to him, given the lack of comfort his benches offered them. Therefore, Nan was a little surprised to find that behind a black silk curtain in a recess of the cabin was an intricate mural of the inside of an inviting inn. Even though the composition was hardly exciting, Nan thought she recognised the style of Adrian Elliot's work in this exquisite attention to detail, from the reflections in the pint glasses or the grain of the wood on the furniture to the exact rendering of the seascape which could be seen through the windows. "'Here, here, come away from there!' called out Captain Mace through the hatch from the wheelhouse. Nan did as she was told, but as a way of making conversation, she was going to ask her uncle about the mural. However, Adrian was nowhere to be seen. In fact, now she thought about it, Nan had not seen him since they'd left the jungle part of the river, and there were few places to hide on the myriad. After opening the only other door in the room, which led to a very basic toilet, she checked under the hatch that served as the table in the main cabin, but quickly replaced it when she uncovered the engine and found the noise to be deafening. Tristan had no idea where their uncle was either, and Nan did not want to wake her father, who was dozing in the corner with Hartley. She decided to ask Captain Mace, who swayed into the cabin. The old man presented them with a broad smile that was all gums and few teeth, proceeded to roll up his fifth cigarette of the journey, and addressed the twins before Nan had a chance to open her mouth. Here, here, I'll tell you some. Captain Mace muttered whilst attending to the precise and delicate art of creating a roll-up cigarette. If you were to take all the teachers in the world, strip them of their gowns and books and pens and charts and instruments and all that clobber and paraphernalia, then you got them to lie down end to end, head to toe, in a straight line starting from, well, London, see, and Edinburgh, well, (laughs) you'd never get a decent education, would you? The captain never noticed that the twins were not really joining in with his wheezing laughter, which turned into a coughing fit, leaving him bent double and threatening to heave up his internal organs. The hacking, gurgling sounds of stubborn mucus were enough to make Nan start retching. Tristan, on the other hand, became engrossed with the old man's grotesque expressions as the sailor attempted to clear his airways. When the captain finally shifted the great glob of phlegm, flung back the wheelhouse door and spat it out into the sea, Tristan cheered and applauded him. Captain Mace gave another toothless grin and bowed to Tristan appreciatively. It was clearly a frequent occurrence because the old sailor quickly recovered, licked the edge of his cigarette paper and rolled up the tobacco, which had remained intact and level at all times, even through his coughing fit. His introduction over, the captain addressed them in a more serious tone. "'Ear, here, your uncle's a great man!' he said, with as much solemnity as he could muster. The captain then nodded towards the sleeping figure of Russell Elliot. And your par's a braven, taking that job after the history it's had. He drew in breath sharply over what was left of his teeth. He's a braven, or a foolish. Why are you going all tragic on us? The job's bona fide is isn't it? "'asked Tristan. "'He's not wrestling anacondas. "'He's not harnessing sharks. "'He's not chasing lightning. "'He's only going to be a caretaker.' "'Exactly. "'And that's just what Paul Elliot better do. "'Take care,' replied the old sailor, "'with no hint of mirth and with no knowledge "'that he was echoing India Halliday's exact sentiments expressed that morning. "'It's been a spell since Mace left old Wanish "'in a landward direction, I mean, "'and he can't much remember how things are done outside.' But we lay store by different values in old Dab and Wanish, so much that there just ain't what it seems that we have to have faith in our mates and fellows. So when a feller has a title, it has to mean what it says. Now, Pa Elliot's our new caretaker. Well, he'd best take care then, says I, and not just of himself and all you lot. You mentioned the job had a history, asked Nan. What did you mean? I take it Adrian's told you what happened to Tother at Caretaker. The twins shook their heads, but Captain Mace just grinned, convinced that they were winding him up. After scrutinising their expressions for a few moments, his expression fell with the gravity of what he had just let slip, and the old sailor started chastising himself. Or Mace, you're a great half-witted cretin, so you are. You're a sailor, Mace, a sailor. Nobody asked you to instruct nobody, did they? Wanish and Dab having attacks, the sisters and him at large, "'and here's you gabbling away like a green girl. "'Cretin, I say. Don't ask me no more questions. "'I'd take it as a great kindness to me if you'd ignore all I've spoken of.' "'We can't do that now,' exclaimed Nan. "'Not after what you've just said.' "'Tain't nothing to worry about now,' captain said, "'in an effort to try to sound reassuring. "'Adrian will sort it all out.' "'What happened to the last caretaker?' demanded Tristan.' Don't ask me. I'm telling you nothing more, replied the old sailor, beginning to panic under their interrogation. You've a duty to tell us, Tristan harried the old man, whilst trying not to wake up Russell. You're taking us to a place where our father could be in danger. As long as Par Elliot takes the proper safety measures, he'll be. Oh, right. The last goober did something like. electrocute himself? interrupted Tristan, who was looking more relieved. Hmm, something like that. The last caretaker was murdered, wasn't he? Nan said, more as a statement than a question. Was his name Templeton? Captain Mace stared at her without blinking for several moments. Nan knew what he was thinking. How would she know the name of the last caretaker and yet know nothing of his work? Templeton, Mace said slowly. Templeton, right. But he was the last caretaker, wasn't he? She asked. Me only duty's to pilot like this tug. Better get back to it. I've only got two other questions, declared Nan. Here, you've two caught me on the line and you've played me nicely, but I'm saying no more about him now. This fish will escape you yet, said Captain Mace firmly. My questions aren't about Templeton, Nan added quietly. Captain Mace stood before Nan and Tristan as a physical and mental opposite of each other where the captain balanced easily on the listing floor of the tug with his mind in turmoil over his blunder. The twins were ungainly pitching back and forth, but their thoughts remained completely focused. The old man took a moment before considering Nan's statement to be harmless and, making a sharp nod of his head, he indicated that she could go on. Firstly, how many people applied for the job of caretaker? The captain swallowed hard and concentrated on each word to make sure it gave away as little as possible. ''Well, now, uh, I'm not sure, but,'' he stopped himself, ''just your par and uh, one other.'' ''Why was the other goober rejected?'' asked Tristan. ''Weren't deemed right, suppose,'' replied Mace. ''Secondly,'' continued Nan, ''where is Uncle Adrian now?'' The old boatman jerked his head sideways, so one eye concentrated solely on her, like a bird examining a movement to see whether it is danger or dinner. The twins were treated to another toothless grin, and then he turned his back on them, leapt up the few steps to the boat's wheelhouse, took the helm and began singing, Oh, hear us when we cry to thee for those in peril on their sea. Finally... At the only time in the trip, when Nan and Tristan had not wanted him to, the old sailor turned his hand to piloting his tug. The twins believed that this was probably all they were going to get from the captain for that day, but after a moment he called them up to the wheelhouse to look out of the window. During the time they had spent in the cabin, night had descended and they could see nothing outside now. The captain quietly closed the hatch leading to the cabin so as not to wake Russell and Hartley and then the old sailor turned off the light in the wheelhouse. The twins had never really known night without some form of electrical illumination close by, and so it was a new experience to find themselves in absolute darkness. The sea and sky had fused to become one dark, unbroken blanket, where occasional flecks of foam glittered like weak and dying shooting stars. But as their eyes adjusted to the dark, they could eventually see that the water took on a blacker shade than the sky. As the myriad plunged into a trough, the sea swallowed the horizon, but then the lighter tone of the sky reclaimed lost ground when the little tug crested the peak of a wave. The captain pointed to something in the rough direction of where land should be. Once their eyes become totally accustomed to the night, they could make out a small collection of lights in the distance – they were too far away to make out its shape, but it was definitely land because the lights remained in a constant position as the tug rode the swell, giving a worrying clue as to how big the waves must be. Wanish limply? asked the twins together. Dab, Captain Mace uttered. Neighbor to a wanish, some says, part of it. The hatchway behind them suddenly shot backwards. Light flooded the tiny wheelhouse, and Adrian Elliot's dripping head poked out. "'Ah, Nan, Tristan, there you are,' he said, "'as if they'd been the ones who disappeared off the boat. "'Will you just return to the cabin for a couple of minutes? "'There are a few things I'd like to run through with you. "'When do you think we'll make oneish captain?' won't be much more than a quarter hour till we make landfall, Adrian, sir. "'No more than ten minutes till the boundary. "'Any new... any fronts moving in I should know about?' Adrian looked blankly at the captain. "'The sailor tried a different tack.' Any low-pressure systems? Er, now, er, any squalls over Wanish? Uh Er... Captain, I would forsake the code, and no, no sign of our friends. Adrian turned towards the twins. Nan, Tristan, will you just return to the cabin for a few moments, please? Why? asked Nan. Well... There are certain peculiarities, if you will, particular characteristics to Wanish Limpley you will not have seen in any other town, and I should uh, like to run through one or two of them with you now. Yeah, the captain said as much, said Tristan. Hmm, did he now, replied Adrian, who now cast an intense gaze towards Captain Mace, which appeared to make the old sailor cower slightly, even with his back turned. I'm keen to glean how much more the captain may have told you. Please, follow me. As the twins returned to the cabin, the old boatman could just be heard to mutter, "Cretin mace, salt water has addled your brains. Russell had been sleeping in an awkward position and winced with the ache in his neck when his brother shook him awake. Hartley remained dozing. Nan and Tristan took a seat beside their father, while Adrian took a seat on the bench opposite them. What do you know of Wanish Limply?" Adrian began. Hardly anything, replied Russell other than that you live there and that if this tug represents Wanish's train or bus service, you probably have the worst public transportation in the world. <laughs> I know, a big fat zilch about WL, Tristan joined in. And you Nan, continued Adrian. I know you have a theatre and I know there's some sort of trouble in Wanish and this other place, Dab, at the moment. I also know that you're not on any map I can find. I can't make sense of the few internet pages on the place and that there have been few or no books written about Wanish Limpley, she replied. Nan was considering her answers quite carefully. She was not ready to release all the information she knew about Wanish to her least favourite uncle without feeling he was going to give something back in return. Is this because the town's too small to be on the map or is it for some other reason? Tristan suddenly spoilt her strategy by blurting out a trump card she'd been saving. Oh, Nan, and I also know that your, uh, your last caretaker died of electrocution. Trist, complained Nan. Ah, the captain told you that? Asked Adrian, glancing up through the open hatchway. Well, that he died from some industrial accident to do with caretaking. Tristan quickly corrected himself. What industrial accident? queried Russell with alarm in his voice. Adrian, why didn't you tell me? Well, certainly his death came about through one of the hazards of his job, replied Adrian, drying his wiry hair with the towel that hung in the tug's toilet. Though Nan's got it into her head that Bert's murdered friend was the last caretaker, Tristan added, completely ruining all Nan's plans to get any information out of her uncle. Adrian immediately ceased rubbing his hair with the towel and stared first at Tristan and then at Nan, as if they just committed some grave offence in front of him. He put the towel aside, rubbed his eyelids, and then drew the fingers down the skin of his face. For a brief moment, Nan thought he looked grotesque, like some evil creature melting in a fire. Great is the damage that has been done already, I see, he said eventually, bringing out his palette knife and scratching at the paint marks on his coat again. So uh, I'm guessing that you see Wanish Limpley not as an exciting mystery as I'd hoped, but somewhere of dark shadows and menacing secrets. Yes, Wanish and Dab are troubled at the moment, Nan. And if I had not been so caught up in the troubles, I could have prepared you all for the place and relieved you of these misunderstandings. Ah, well, I suppose I have a little time now. Barrier right ahead, Mr Adrian, sir, called out Captain Mace from behind the wheel. Adrian got up and shut the hatch between the wheelhouse and cabin. "'He remained standing, sifting the powdered paint "'he'd scratched off between his long, bony hands. "'The next few days are a trial period for all of you. "'Not just for you, Russell, in your new job, "'which will soon find you out if you're not worthy of it, "'but for you, Nan, and for you, Tristan.' I have given my word to the citizens of Wanish and Dab that you have all the right metal for the place and I doubt not that you will prove me right. But Wanish is special in ways that are wordless. Wordless for me, anyway. I cherish nothing so much as this community. I prize it above all other things and I do mean all other things. No doubt you've been wondering whether you'll like Wanish Limply. But in many ways, your opinion is irrelevant, because the town will test you and it will find you out. If it rejects you, you will have to leave it at once and never return. However, should it embrace you, it is unlikely that you will ever wish to leave it for long. I am certain you will all fit into Wanish nicely. I must warn you, though, that the town has an enigma, a secret which will not be explained to you at first. You must not try to discover it, let it come to you. I can say also that Wanish is not just a quiet little coastal town. It's dangerous, especially at the moment. Yes, Templeton was murdered. And yes, he was a caretaker. And yes, he was murdered because he was a caretaker. I am a caretaker myself, Russell. It is one of the highest offices in the community and a great honour. Yet there is a chance you will put yourself and your family at risk by taking it. I never read anything like that in the job description, exclaimed Russell, in as close to outrage as his children had ever seen him. I do not believe you ever received a job description, Russell, barked back Adrian. I've risked much in Wanish and Dab by insisting that you, my brother, were right for caretaking, and if you do not want the job and would rather return to aimlessly floundering about in your city, let me know, Russell, and I'll have Mace turn this tug around and take you straight back immediately. Russell went silent for a moment. Tristan frowned while Nan glowered at her uncle, livid with him for belittling her father. "'But my children, Adrian, are as safe as any other child in Wanish or Dab,' interrupted Adrian, still short with his brother, but not quite as angry now. "'Fewer are even murdered there. Probably far fewer than in your home city. "'Well, probably. But it was only fair to warn you that there are dark elements not to be ignored.' "'I don't know if I can do this to my children, Adrian.' Russell replied, holding Hartley close to him and staring at the twins desperately. Not for the first time, Nan was trying to think of something reassuring to say to her father. But Tristan got there first. (laughs) An adventure's no adventure without a bit of danger, Russ. If there's no danger, it's just a day out. Russell turned to his daughter. Nan? Tris's right, Dad. We should show them that we're not faced by anything they might throw at us, and let's hope that not only are we good enough for this town, but it's worthy of us. Adrian smiled at his niece's defiance, which annoyed Nan even more. Are we still continuing to Wanish, Russell? asked Adrian quietly. Russell nodded a yes, just as the tugboat seemed to pass through a tunnel where the engine echoed deafeningly for a minute and then out the other side. Good man! said Adrian. Onwards it is. I did not want to make you feel you were backed into a corner, but to be frank, it's too late to go back now anyway. Go out on deck if you want, children, and get your first clear view of Wanish, Limply, and Dab. The exchange between their father and uncle had left a bitter taste in the mouth of the twins. Nan and Tristan both took advantage of the uncle's suggestion and headed outside, partly to get the first true look at their new home and partly to get away from Adrian, who Nan was beginning to hate with a passion that surprised even her. Whatever picture or impression the twins had in their minds as to what Wanish Limpley actually looked like did in no way live up to the stormy, indistinct landscape of light and shadow they were gazing at now. To their right was a dark, rocky arc of land that marked part of the edge of the bay and, judging by the large number of lights clustered behind and along a solid seawall, represented the main part of the town. The house lights were too weak to illuminate anything clearly. The edges of structures seemed to blur or smudge into shadow. Even so, they could tell that Wanish Limpley was a compact place of hickety-pickety houses fitting snugly into the cruggy cove. Up on a far cliff top, the barely-glimpsed forms of what must have been immense trees shook their shaggy heads and hissed in vigorous disapproval at the weather. Close by, on the port side of the tug, across about 400 yards of water from the main town, a thick walled harbour jutted out into the sea. Behind this rose speckles of lights, rising in tiers up one of the dark flanks of a shallow hill that looked like the stubby black hump of some vast sea creature, on the far side of the hill, the side that faced out to sea, there must have been a lighthouse as a beam swept from horizon to horizon across the squally sea, beyond but stopped short of illuminating the scene before them. This hump of rock acted as a breaker for the small town, offering shelter from the buffeting wind and battering rollers that came barrelling in from the open sea. However, It also had the effect of sending currents clashing into each other, forming eddies and riptides where the water remained in a constant state of foaming upheaval. Captain Mace steered the myriad around the water hazards he knew by heart and kept the little tug on a course towards a stone jetty over on their right, where a figure waited with a lantern swinging in its hand. A fresh blast of wind blew on their faces as they approached the jetty. Nan turned to see that the dark hump of a hill was actually an island, lying no more than a quarter of a mile from the mainland. Dab Island, Nan thought to herself. She caught a glimpse of moving lights, but hardly had time to consider why people were out in such weather, before Adrian was throwing a rope to the figure with the lantern, and they prepared to moor the tug. The figure was a boy, about the same age as the twins, He was quite tall, already the size of an average man, and possessed wild curly hair which the wind took delight in blowing into his eyes. He quickly made fast the rope and then whistled to his pet bird, which obediently waddled up to him, only to take shelter behind the boy's legs. There was something both familiar and unfamiliar about the bird. It was the size of a turkey, was covered in scrubby grey feathers and had a strong curved beak, as well as the white plume for a little tail. Nan was sure she recognised it, but its name escaped her. She had no time to dwell on the bird, though, because Adrian was calling out to the boy. "'Any news, Toby?' "'The sisters are still at large,' the boy shouted back, his voice barely audible in the wind. "'Some sighting on the island, apparently.' "'And the boy?' Toby shrugged his shoulders. "'No sign. Everyone's inside now, except the other caretakers,' he added, nodding towards the island.' Russell and his eldest children immediately turned to face Dab Island. It took them a few moments to spy four pinpoints of light on the dark upper slopes of the island. A light flared briefly as the door was opened, but it quickly vanished again. Russell had hoped that witnessing the caretakers at work might give him some idea of the role that he was expected to fill, but he turned back, looking just as perplexed as before. Hartley grimaced and then groaned in his sleep, and Russell held the little boy closer to him. Van Deven and my folks are still back here in Wanish, Toby continued, just in case. Hmm, I'd better go and join the others, replied Adrian, offering a hand to Nan to help her out of the rocking boat, which she did not accept. Toby, can you take my brother and his family to the Painted Pilchard for... uh, Oh, curse your manners, Adrian. Toby, may I introduce Russell, Tristan, Nan and Hartley-Elliot? Russell, Tristan, Nan... And Hartley? Toby and Geoffrey, added Adrian in a pointed, disapproving fashion, which immediately made Toby adopt a sheepish expression. Oh, you know how Geoff doesn't like being cooped up, Mr Adrian, he defended himself. He loves to get out and get a bit of air. Nan glanced at the large bird called Geoffrey, whose squint into the gale and huddled appearance, left her with the feeling that the bird was far from loving the amount of air being forced into it at that moment. Where's your parachute, Toby? Adrian continued in a tone of reproach. How many times must I tell you how dangerous it is to be without your chute, especially in the present climate? Toby hung his head, conceding the fault, and when Adrian spoke again, his manner was less disproving. Well, as I was saying, will you take my family to the inn? I have no doubt that your parents will make them comfortable. Good. Captain Mace, right o the old sailor cried out and disappeared back inside the wheelhouse adrian untied the rope from a cleat and jumped back aboard the bucking myriad as it backed away from the jetty russell i promise to spend some time with you all soon he called out there is much about wanish that will still need explaining in the meantime just settle in and sleep well oh and uh, (laughs) welcome to wanish limply Adrian's last words were almost lost in the wail of the wind. Toby allowed the Elliots a moment to watch the tug chug away towards the island, and then he insisted that they follow him, and the ruffled Geoffrey towards the lights behind him.